Hi, this is Pastor Jim. Thanks for joining us for this week's message from Riverside Church. I believe you will be inspired and blessed by the Word of God. We'd love to welcome you to one of our services next time you're in the Brisbane area. If you'd like to know more about us, go online at www.riversidecc.org.au or like us on Facebook to hear about up-and-coming events. I hope you enjoy the message. God bless you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much we can come and we can look at your word. We can open up your word and you will speak to us because your word is living and active. It encourages us, it motivates us, it challenges us. And as I heard during the last couple of weeks, a sermon is not meant to be agreed with, it's meant to be wrestled with. So we come around your word, we're going to wrestle with your word this morning, God, because it is the word that gives life and light to our path. So bless us, open our hearts to receive Holy Spirit, come and speak to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This morning I've titled my message, The Time Has Come. The Time Has Come. In our dining room, in our house, we have a calendar on the wall that Jane makes up every, every month. And she places all the important events that happen that month. And every person in our family, including our dog Stella, gets a different colour. So we know on the calendar which event relates to which person. Organised, okay? That, that makes sense. So we can see when things are coming up, when the girls have sport, when there's early starts that are required, when I'm going to be away, those things. It's really easy to follow, okay? It's also really good a way of counting down to things. So we put our birthdays, if it's on that month, and Jane colours in with little balloons and streamers. It's really exciting. So we can count down the days to people's birthdays or Christmas Day or Easter, whatever happens to be. We can count them down because it's written on the calendar. I think we all kind of do that in our way. You might not have a calendar in your house, but we all count down to important days in our life, don't we? We look forward to them, things we look forward to. There's this anticipation of things to come. At my school, if I went to any year 12 student at my school, they could tell me exactly how many days there are to graduation. 22, in case you're wondering. They, they've memorized, they know, because they're excited to finally finish high school. When we are counting down to something, and it isn't here yet, we have that sort of like that bubbliness, the anticipation, the can't wait till it gets here, the excitement, holding on to the day arrives. And then we can celebrate because the time has come. The time of waiting is over. And we're going to see this morning in John 12 that after much waiting, finally the time has come. Last week, Pastor Pavey talked about the triumphant entry of Jesus. He came into Jerusalem and they put palm branches down and they declared, Hosanna, how to the king of Israel. Wonderful celebration, joy and excitement. And the Pharisees who've been looking for, for Jesus for so long, they couldn't grab Jesus because all the people flocked to Jesus. They, were, they, rushed, to, they rushed to him and they, they, they shout him praises. It's all very exciting. It's commotion, celebrating. It's a wonderful thing. And Pastor Pepe talked about the different perspectives of people who were going to see Jesus that day. But after that, once he's entered in Jerusalem, we're going to read what happens next. And in John chapter 12, Verse 20, we read this. Some Greeks who had come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. John is the only one who mentions the Greek travelers. None of the other gospel writers do. We know from studying John that the other three gospels are synoptic, they are similar, whereas John is didactic, different. He had a purpose specific purpose he wanted to get across. In the other Gospels, after Jesus enters into Jerusalem, and it's much fanfare and celebration, Hosanna and all that, he goes to the temple. 
And he goes to the temple. And what does he do? He turns over the tables because they've turned his God's house, God's house into a marketplace. Okay? In Luke 19, we read that account where Jesus has come in and they've disrespected God's house and he comes in, he flips the tables and drives them out, which is, of course, is a repeat of an earlier thing he did, which we read about in John 2. So it's the second time Jesus has done this. They obviously didn't learn the lesson the first time when he came in and flipped the tables because he has to do it again. So in the three Gospels, they talk about Jesus overturning the tables, but John doesn't. John focuses on these Greek travelers. They've come for Passover. And in tradition with the Greeks, what the Greeks like to do was study different religions and different philosophies. That's what they'd like to do and learn about them. What truth can I unfold? What's going to be applied to my life? And so they came, and they were probably in the court of the Gentiles, because they're Greeks, so they're not Jews. They're probably in the court of Gentiles. And they probably heard this commotion and saw Jesus, this Jesus fellow, flipping tables and driving people out. And they're thinking, wow, who's this guy? I want to learn more about this Jesus guy. So obviously, after the commotion died down, these Greek travelers obviously sought after Jesus. They made inquiries. How can we get to speak with him? And so they go to Philip. Why do they go to Philip? I don't know. Probably because Philip's a Greek name. I don't know. And they some familiarity there. Maybe they thought Philip would be less intimidating than Jesus. I don't know. Then Philip takes him to Andrew. And Andrew is really good at introducing people to Jesus. Okay? Introduced his brother Peter to Jesus way back in the time. He also introduced the boy with the loaves and bread to Jesus. So Andrew's really good at introducing people to Jesus. And so Philip and Andrew take these Greek travelers and they go to speak with Jesus. It's no small thing that John includes these Greek travelers, as we're going to find out. Because these Greek travelers stand in stark contrast to others who have sought Jesus. The Jews sought Jesus for him to validate who he was, to say, I am the Son of God. They needed validation. They wanted him to prove who he said he was. People came to Jesus looking for a miracle, wanted a sign, they wanted to be healed. But the Greek travelers want neither of those two things. They're just simply seeking truth. What does Jesus have to teach us? What can we learn from Jesus? So when they're brought to Jesus, the question is, what kind of encounter is it going to be? Is it going to be like Nicodemus and Jesus, where Jesus is going to sit down and talk about truth and unpack God's word? Or is it going to be like the woman at the well, where Jesus will speak about inclusion? He will speak to someone, Gentiles, who aren't really included in Judaism. Is it going to be that encounter? Is it going to be like the feeding of the 5,000, a miraculous encounter? What's going to happen when these Greek travelers sit down with Jesus? Well, let's find out. Jesus replied, Now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. Thank you, Jesus, for answering the question that nobody asked. Awesome. He didn't even ask a question. Jesus says, Jesus replied, To what? There's nothing. They just brought the Greeks to Jesus, and Jesus just starts talking. Okay, there's no question. What question is he answering? He just launches into a discourse about wheat kernels. Thank you, Jesus. That clears everything up. Awesome. These men came without seeking a sign. They're not asking for a miracle. They didn't come wanting to be healed. They just came searching for truth. And so what does Jesus do? He gives them truth. Even without a question, he knows what they need. He knows what they need to hear. Because what he actually says is really important. Because after all this counting down, guess what? He says, 
the time has come. Time for what? All throughout our explanation of John, we have seen time and time again, Jesus has said what? My time has not yet come. In John 2.4, talking with his mother, she says, they run out of wine. Jesus says, my time has not yet come. In John 4.21, he says to the woman at the well, my time is coming. Not yet, it is coming. John 7.6, he says to his brothers, the time is not right yet. John 8.20, he says to the people, my time has not yet come. But now, in John 12, what does he say? The time has come. We got there. The countdown is over. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, days from his crucifixion, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. For us, it's been 12 chapters and about 10 months looking at John. But for God's people, it's been hundreds of years. They've been waiting for the Son of Man to come. In Daniel 7, verse 13, it says this, Says Daniel, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient one and was led into his presence. God's people have been waiting for the son of man to come. Daniel got visions about it. The son of man is coming. Daniel was written in the late 6th century. That's hundreds of years before Jesus was born. They have been waiting so long for this to happen. God's beloved, God's chosen one, the Messiah, the Son of Man, to establish a new kingdom that will never end. And here we have Jesus proclaiming the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. Today is the day. We got there, finally. But then Jesus doesn't end there. That's not all he says. He goes on and talks about kernels and death. Awesome. Jesus uses imagery that they're familiar with. It's a farming culture. They know how seeds work and how plants grow. They're surrounded by farmers, well, they are farmers, and they have first-hand knowledge of the process. So when you put a seed in the ground, the seed must first die before life can grow. Seeds are amazing. If you take a seed and you put the seed in your pocket, okay, and you leave it there, and the seed goes through the wash with everything else, like tissues and rocks and stones and everything. Else, my daughters pick up leaves, I don't know, sand, sand is everywhere. If you put the seed in your pocket and it goes through the wash with everything else, what happens to the seed? Nothing happens to the seed. It does nothing. It just sits there in your pocket, it does nothing. But if you take that same seed out of your pocket and you put it in the ground and you water it and sun shines on it, what happens to the seed? It grows. Isn't that amazing? It's the same seed. just needs to be in the right place. The outer husk of the seed will die away, and inside life will begin anew. So in order to have a life, we must have a death. So Jesus is warming up the crowd. We know this. We're 21st century Christians. We know what's happened. We know what's going to happen to Jesus. They don't know what's going to happen to Jesus, but we know what's about to happen to Jesus. He's warming the crowd up for what he's going to say. So we have a proclamation, the time has come. We have a lesson on agriculture. And then Jesus continues. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me, because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Now, it's one thing to talk about the death of seed. Okay, we understand that. But now Jesus is talking about people losing their life. 
if we love our life, we will lose it. But if we don't care about our life, we'll live forever. What are you talking about, Jesus? I don't get it. Those Greek travelers are probably thinking, right, okay, I might go ask someone else now what's, what's going on. Like, yeah, they're probably confused. They have no idea what's going on. I don't want to lose my life, Jesus, but also don't want to care about my life either. So what's Jesus talking about? He's talking about transformation. Transformation. The seed transforms into a plant that sustains life. If we lay aside our love for these temporary things, our love for this world, then we too can be transformed. We can move from the temporal to the eternal. Transformation. And how do we transform? Jesus. By serving and following Jesus. But the statement doesn't read as we would expect. So many times Jesus said in the Gospels, follow me, didn't he? He said, follow me. But he doesn't say it the same way here. Jesus doesn't say, if you want to follow me, you must serve me. Jesus says the other way around. He said, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. Jesus has now established himself a new kingdom. He's setting himself up now as the king of kings. What will read above Jesus' cross on his crucifixion? It will say, the king of the Jews. That's what it's going to say. That's what Pilate is going to put there. Before, when Jesus went around, people would call him what? They would call him rabbi. Rabbi. You know only three people in the Bible are called rabbi? Paul, Jesus, and Gamaliel. Only three. And Jesus is one of them. If you grew up as a young boy and you were Jewish, the whole aim of your life, the best case scenario, is that you end up as a rabbi. Okay? Because rabbis is the height. It's a place of honor. Okay? People respect you. So you're trying to be a rabbi. And if you can't be a rabbi, the next best thing is to be chosen as a student of a rabbi and you follow them around. Okay? The thing is, is that it's a very long process. It's a very long process. And it's very difficult. If you couldn't recite the book of Leviticus by the age of six, you're out. Whew, and that would probably discount everybody in this room, including myself. Maybe Pastor Jim, I don't know. Okay? It's a long process. We see Jesus in the temple at the age of 12, and it says they marvel at his questions, yes? But we don't see Jesus again until when? Until he's 30, 18 years later. What's Jesus doing for 18 years? Qualifying to be a rabbi. That's how long it takes. It's a long time. So a Jewish boy grew up, and he longed to hear the words, follow me. A rabbi that would choose them to follow and to serve and to learn under. They longed to hear the term, follow me. Which is, as an aside, have you ever wondered why the disciples just left everything and followed Jesus? Like they were fishing, actually fishing. And Jesus says, follow me. They jumped out of the boat and they followed Jesus. They left their dad to do the rest of the work. They left everything behind. Matthew, a tax collector, is sitting there at his booth. He has a lucrative job. No one likes him because everyone hated tax collectors, because they were traitors to the Jewish people. But he is a well-paying job. Jesus comes, he says, follow me, and Matthew just leaves his booth and everything behind and follows Jesus. Why would they do that? Because their entire life, they've waited for someone to say, follow me. And now Jesus says, follow me. That's why they left everything. It's so important to them. But Jesus doesn't say, follow me first. He says, those who will serve me. Because Jesus is moving from rabbi to king, 
And what do you do to a king? You serve a king, not follow a king. Jesus says, those who will serve me will follow me. Because he's establishing a new kingdom. A new kingdom that will last forever. And we can move from the temple to the eternal and live forever. You know what the best part is? In verse 26, it says, anyone. Anyone. Not just men. Not just Jewish men who have completed education. Jesus says, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me. Jesus' invitation is for anybody who would come. The door is open. Come and serve. Anyone can accept his invitation. That was so mind-blowing to that culture that Jesus would invite anyone. And it didn't matter where you come from or who you were. If you accept his invitation, God will honor you. That's what Jesus says. So Jesus proclaims our time has come. There's a new kingdom that lasts forever. Everyone is welcome if you lay down your temporary life and serve the eternal king. And then Jesus changes gears. He says this, Now my soul is deeply troubled. Should I pray, Father, save me from this hour? But this is the very reason I came. Father, bring glory to your name. Then a voice spoke from heaven saying, I have already brought glory to my name and I will do so again. When the crowd heard the voice, some thought it was thunder, while others declared an angel had spoken to him. Jesus then told them, the voice was for your benefit, not mine. The time is for judging this world has come, when Satan, the ruler of this world, will be cast out. When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. He said this to indicate how he was going to die. So Jesus has declared the time has come for him to be glorified, and we're invited to, enjoy, invited to join him and what is establishing? Now we see a change in Jesus' dialogue. He declares, he confesses that his soul is deeply troubled. He is wrestling with what is fast approaching. He knows crucifixion is only days away. And he is wrestling with what must transpire, what he must go through in order that you can accept the invitation that he's given you. We see the same wrestle in the Garden of Gethsemane. When on the cusp of being arrested, Jesus says to his father, May this cup pass from me. May this cup pass from me. Not, but not my will, your will be done. Jesus did not look forward to the cross. Jesus was not looking forward to what was going to happen. Jesus is not a masochist, people. Okay? He's not a masochist. But he's not a psychopath either. Okay? He didn't want to have to enjoy the pain of the cross, the torture that is crucifixion. But he also knew his purpose. And that was to save everyone from their sin. He will endure because of his cause. He won't leave the world condemned to be eternally separated from their God. So Jesus chooses the option that glorifies God. The one that reveals God's love for his people. A love that would sacrifice his own son so that everyone can accept the invitation of Jesus. And then we see something that occurs only three times in the ministry of Jesus. God speaks audibly from heaven. We see it his baptism. It's beautiful. The lake and there was rainbows and there was doves and Jesus and God spoke. This is whom son with whom I'm well pleased. It was awesome. It was amazing. And then the Mount Transfiguration. God is there and he speaks in Matthew 17. And now God speaks at this moment from heaven. But as you read, it said, some thought it was thunder. 
I was declaring an angel was talking. And then Jesus replies, that was for your benefit, not mine. How could it be for their benefit if all they heard was thunder? They didn't hear what God said. They couldn't make out what he was saying. It was just a rumble. Jesus didn't need God to speak to know that God was still in control. Jesus knew that. Jesus didn't need God to speak to know that glory was coming on the cross. Jesus knew that. But a response from the heavens, after Jesus has declared himself king, the son of man, then an inexplicable rumble of thunder. There's been a lot of storms this week, yes? Yes. Who likes storms? Anyone likes storms? I love storms. Okay? Do you know who doesn't love storms? My dog. My dog does not like storms. She hears a crack of thunder. She almost pees herself and tries to jump on us. And she's not a small dog. She's like this tall. Okay? She's heavy. Okay? We hear a crack of thunder and we take notice. Can you imagine what it is like for God to speak a full sentence and you hear it as thunder? Everyone would have taken notice. There'd be no way you could ignore it. At the moment, Jesus declares that he is king, that he is the son of man, and he will be glorified, rumble from heaven. God's voice, regardless of how it was heard by the people, was undeniable confirmation that Jesus is who he says he is. And for all those who accept his invitation, God is going to honor you. So Jesus has declared the time has come to enter into his glory. But what does that mean? That's a nice thing to say, but what does that actually mean? Now, Jesus makes another statement. He says, The time has come for judging the world when Satan, the ruler of the world, will be cast out. There's a lot to love about this verse. I mean, who doesn't like to hear about Jesus speaking about the devil being defeated? Yeah? That's a good thing, yes? We think, yes, okay? But this verse is even better because the word term cast out in the original language is the term akbalo exo. Ekbalo exo, that sounds cool, okay? Ekbalo exo. Ekbalo literally means, that's the cast, it means to drive out, to compel one to depart. And I don't want to get too unsavory, but it's actually the same word to go to the toilet. Number twos. The devil's going to be expelled, okay? That's colorful language from Jesus. Because the enemy, he's going to be expelled and cast out. An exo means out, but it also means to go without. So Jesus, is going to be, so Jesus is going to drive out the devil, drive out the enemy. The enemy is going to be driven out, expelled out, and left without anything. He is going to be defeated completely and utterly. That sounds awesome, Jesus. When's it going to happen? When will we know? How are we going to know this has happened? And Jesus says, when I looked up from the earth. Lifted up literally means on the cross. He was literally lifted up in front of people. But the word for lifted up also means to exalt. So we also lift Jesus up in exaltation when we worship him. So when our king is hoisted up and everyone can see him, that is when victory occurs. That is when the enemy is defeated. But the problem is, for everyone looking around, it doesn't look like victory, does it? It looks like Jesus has been defeated and the enemy is celebrating It'll appear as defeat, but it's actually victory. Such is the cross of Jesus. When things look hard, we have victory already. People hear a declaration. 
They hear the time has come. They've heard the heavens confirm Jesus' words. And there's the promise of an enemy defeated. That sounds awesome. So what's their reaction going to be? It's going to be great, right? The crowd responded. We understood from Scripture that the Messiah would live forever. How can you say the Son of Man will die? Just who is the Son of Man anyway? Jesus replied, my light will shine for you just a little longer. Walk in the light while you can, so the darkness will not overtake you. Those who walk in the darkness cannot see where they're going. Put your trust in the light while there's still time, and then you'll become children of light. And after saying these things, Jesus went away and was hidden from them. So it sounds great, Jesus. I love the part where Satan is driven out. Awesome. I love the part where the Messiah becomes king. Awesome. But hang on. Scripture says the Son of Man, the Messiah, never dies. So they're going to argue a point of theology after all this good news. That's their reaction. Are you serious? Really? It sounds great, Jesus, but what's with all the talk about death? Okay? I don't really get that. I don't like that part. Okay? They completely ignored everything Jesus says. Jesus talked about seeds dying then becoming life. Okay? Talked about him being lifted up. God himself endorses Jesus. But as soon as Jesus talks about death, they're like, Hold on, Jesus. Just wait, just wait a minute. Who's the son of man anyway? Jesus must be thinking to himself, have you not listened to anything I said? Who's the son of man anyway? Are you serious? I just said I'd be lifted up, the son of man be lifted up on a cross. It's me, okay? Who's the son of man anyway? They sound like my children. I can spend five minutes explaining in detail what my children need to do. And I guarantee you, two seconds later, one of them will ask, what are we doing again? And I'm like, ah, I don't want to name them child, but it's always Madeline. So, okay, she's not here, so it doesn't matter, okay? They sound like children who aren't listening to anything Jesus is saying. What I love is that Jesus doesn't even answer them. He completely ignores their questions. He doesn't respond to them at all. His reply is totally directed at those who would follow him, those who are going to choose to accept the invitation, who are going to serve the King of Kings. He says this, he says, walk in the light so darkness doesn't overtake you. The darkness is real. And if you don't follow Jesus, you will lose your way. Trust in Jesus, the light of the world. While there's still time, and you can become children of light. Following and serving your king moves you from temporal to eternal. From that which is in darkness and doomed to die and be transformed to the one that lives in light and lives together as part of his family. Jesus doesn't answer their questions. He doesn't speak to their doubt or their uncertainty. Instead, he shows them the right path to take. He shows them how to move forward. Let's not get stuck on these questions. Let's just move forward, shall we? And he shows them the way to go. Walk in the light while you still can. These are some of Jesus' last words publicly to people. For soon the time will come when Jesus will turn his attention to preparing his disciples for what's going to happen next. Jesus has declared to the people that the time you've waited for so long is finally here. That there is transformation available if you would accept the king's invitation. That God himself has acknowledged Jesus and spoken from the heavens. That the enemy, Satan, will be cast out and we've been given light to follow through the darkness. The question is then, what does that mean for us? How is that relevant for us in the 21st century? 
What do we learn? What do we wrestle with? What is the Holy Spirit saying to you? I want to quickly look at four words. Four ideas that can transform us as we seek to serve a living king and bring glory to God. And the first word is paraclete. It's not even English. I was off to a good start. Paraclete. Paraclete simply means advocate or comforter. In John 14, 16, Jesus tells us, the disciples will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate who will never leave you. John 14, 16. Okay? The Holy Spirit was sent after Jesus returned to be with God the Father. He is the other advocate, which means there had to be a first advocate, didn't there? Okay? Which means, who was that? Jesus. Okay? Jesus is the first advocate. Awesome. You're on the same page. Excellent. He was the advocate who was sent, the comforter to draw people to himself. Why is that important? Why does that even matter? Because in Jesus, we have an advocate who understands us. You can't advocate for someone if you don't understand them first. It doesn't work. One of my roles as a chaplain is that I'm an advocate for students. But I can't do that well unless I know the student first. So I have to talk to them, understand their situation. I need to empathize with them and what they've gone through. I need to comprehend what they've dealt with. Graft who they are in their circumstance. I need to know them. And then I can advocate for them correctly. Jesus empathizes with our roller coaster. I hate roller coasters. Okay? Who here hates roller coasters? Anyone hate roller coasters? Apart from, yes. Excellent. Who here loves roller coasters? Put your hand up. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's what the eyes have it. Excellent. Okay. I hate roller coasters. It's probably the fact that I hate heights. That's probably the reason why I hate roller coasters. The last time I was on a roller coaster, I was in high school. Probably year 10. I was probably like 15. I'm 42 now. It's been a long time. Okay? And the only reason I went on the roller coaster is why, of course? Because my friends went on the roller coaster. And you can't say no because then you'd be a wuss. Okay? So you have to do things you wouldn't normally do to impress other people. We all know what that feels like, don't we? Okay? We've all done that before, yes? Okay? Never been on a roller coaster since. No, thank you, Jesus. Okay? But you understand when I say, when I say life is like a roller coaster, you know exactly what I mean, don't you? There's ups and there's downs and things sometimes go around. You're back where you started again. You don't know how you got there. Okay? It jostles you. It's confusing. You anticipate the highs of life, but then you dread the downs of life. But the best thing about a roller coaster is this. You already know what your destination is before you get on. If you're on a roller coaster, eventually you get back to the platform again so you can jump out and kiss the ground and thank you, Jesus, I didn't die. Okay? The best thing about following Jesus through life roller coaster is you already know your destination. You know where you're going. There is no question about that. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. We know where we're going. That's not the only good thing. Through the roller coaster, we have an advocate, someone to be with us on the ride, to comfort us, our paraclete, to take the ride with us. And we can trust in him because why? Because he's already ridden the roller coaster before. He knows what's going to happen next. Jesus had a roller coaster ride of life as well. You think about it. His baptism. It's amazing. His cousin, his friend John is there baptizing him. A witness to that he is the Messiah. You know, and there's God speaking. There's doves and there's rainbows and there's awesome stuff. Okay? John is there. What happens next? His cousin John is killed. Gets beheaded. It's a down. 
Jesus asks his followers, who do, you, who do you say I am? Peter, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ. Awesome, Peter. You got it, man. You've got it. That's a really high. Next, very next conversation. Not, not minutes later, Jesus says, I'm going to have to die on the cross. Peter says, no, you're not going to die. And Jesus is like, Peter, get behind me, Satan. Up here to down there, very, very quickly. Jesus enters Jerusalem. They're crying, Hosanna, Hosanna. How to the king of Israel? It's a high. Less than a week later, what are they crying out? Crucify him. The same people. Jesus understands the roller coaster. He knows what you're going through. Every emotion you have felt, Jesus has already felt. He knows. Never, ever think that what you're going through is too insignificant to take it to Jesus. Ever. Because Jesus understands. He empathizes. He knows what you're going through. Never withhold from him because you think it doesn't matter. Because you think Jesus has more important things to do. Because God doesn't care. It's not true. Because Jesus had ridden the roller coaster before. He is our advocate. The Holy Spirit now lives within us. He is God within us. Our advocate, our comforter, in our pain, our circumstance. The first word is paraclete. The second word is what? That's not a question. The second word is actually what? Okay? Stay with me for a second. Okay. Jesus said, he didn't say, not what do I do? He said, what should I pray? He's wrestling. His, his heart is heavy. His soul is heavy. But Jesus doesn't say, God, what do I do next? He says, what should I pray? Should I pray this or should I pray that? Jesus, with a troubled soul, beginning to consider the weight of the cross that he must endure, he says, what should I pray? Jesus' first instinct is to pray. There's no question. There's no doubt. There's no hesitation. The first thing he does is pray. He's feeling internally uneasy. He's troubled. And without doubt or question, he turns to his father in prayer. If you take away nothing else from this morning, your first action should always be to pray because God cares and he wants to hear from you. What do we pray? That's the question. What do we pray? Jesus' first option is to cry out to God for rescue. God, save me. Rescue me from this. In the garden, let this cup pass from me if it will. But then Jesus acknowledges the very reason he came. He knows his call. He doesn't pray for rescue. Instead, he prays for God to bring glory to his name. The question is not, what do I do? And it's not, should I pray? The question for everybody here is, what do I pray? The answer is, I don't know. Thanks, Pastor Randall. That was awesome. I don't know because I don't know your situation. I don't know what you brought in here today. What's happening in the last week? I don't know. I don't know your circumstance. Maybe for you, the prayer is, God, rescue me. Because you have done everything else. And the only thing you can do is say, God, save me. Maybe that is your prayer. People all over the world, when facing harrowing circumstances, have prayed to God, rescue me. Whether they believe in God or not, they cry out to God, rescue me. But maybe, just maybe, instead of praying, God, rescue me, we should pray, God be revealed. Do you pray for rescue? 
Will you pay for God to be revealed? Because sometimes we just want to be rescued. But God wants us to be refined. So instead of praying for rescue, ask God to refine you through your circumstance. We are transformed when we don't cry out to be saved, but surrender to God's will so he can be revealed and glorified in our life. Paul tells of a thorn in 2 Corinthians 12. The thorn in his side, a messenger from the enemy. And three times Paul cries out, God, save me. God, rescue me. And what's God's response? No. He doesn't say no. All that God says is, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. God doesn't take away the thorn. He just says, my grace is sufficient for you. Because the thorn, whatever it was, obviously was a pain in Paul's life. It was a pain to deal with. But it was there so Paul could grow and lean on God more. Because in Paul's weakness and things are out of his control, God's power was made perfect in his life. Because he had to trust in God. He had no other choice. He had to trust in God. Sometimes God wants to refine us, not rescue us. So what do you pray? Rescue me, God, or be revealed in my life. So your name is glorified. The third word is victory. It's hard to deny that when Jesus said the time has come, and out of that we will all have victory, that humankind received the best news they could ever receive. Okay, When Jesus went to the cross, and he was victorious, and then he was defeated, that was the greatest day in history. When Jesus was lifted up and gave his life for everyone, and Satan was defeated, that means we get to live in victory forever. It is important, just as we know our destination whilst on the roller coaster, that we remember we are already victorious. We already have victory. We are not in a battle that has yet to be decided. We're not in a battle that's yet to be decided. Sometimes we can forget that as we struggle to ride the ups and downs and get jostled by the roller coaster, especially when all we seem to be is going down and get to the bottom and we keep staying there and we can't get up again, it's hard to remember that we have victory in Jesus. The battle's already been won. We didn't even need to fight it. Jesus took up the fight for us. Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 5, 57, he's 15, 57, he says this, but thank God he gives us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't get simpler than that. He gives us victory. I understand that sometimes the last thing we feel is victorious. I get that. But as we're jostled by the roller coaster and we take hit after hit after hit, the word victory, the concept of victory seems unattainable, seems unreachable. But here is the truth. If you believe that Jesus is the Son of God, if you believe that he died for your sins and rose again, then that means you believe that Jesus has defeated sin and its power. And if he has done that, he's defeated sickness and he has defeated death. And because you have been transformed and you are a new creation in Christ Jesus, as a new creation, you are already victorious. From the moment you believe in Jesus, you are already victorious because you are a new creation have been transformed. Jesus calls those things which we fear, which we dread, which we which consume our life, doubts and worries. He takes their power away. Jesus brought into the existence the death of death itself. That's victory. That is whom you believe in. That is whom you serve. 
the one who has triumphed over all that would try and rob you of the life that God has for you. Let the seeds of doubt, the seeds of unworthiness, the seeds of fear, the seeds of worry, the seeds of anxiety, let them die away so that God can begin new life within you and so it can sprout up. Cast off that which is dead and lift up the one who's given you victory. And lastly, light. This is why it's so important we talk about light, how we walk in the light. Because the darkness is real. The darkness looms. And things like doubt and fear and worries and distractions, they lurk in the darkness. Jesus ends his teaching with an urging to stay in the light because dark times are ahead. So we need to stay in our light so we don't lose our way. We walk in the light or we're overcome by darkness. There's your option. There's only two. Either you walk in the light or you will be overcome by darkness. That's the promise of Jesus. That's what he says. That's why I encouraged him. That's why he gave them the path forward. Jesus knew the next week for his followers would be hard. It's going to be so hard. He knew the trials ahead. He knows the challenges you face, the challenges you face this week. He knows the thoughts that invade your mind when you're trying to sleep. We've all been there before, haven't we? Trying to go to sleep and things keep coming in your mind and you can't get rid of them. Jesus knows and he understands. The darkness threatens to overtake you. But in Jesus we have hope. In Psalm 119, verse 105, it says this, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light for my path. A very famous verse. I'm sure most of us have heard that verse before. We don't know who wrote Psalm 119. But the picture that they give us is really important. In the days of its writing, the people only had a small oil lamp with which to see by. They could only see a step at a time in front of them. So in walking in the dark, they had to make sure they paid attention to the light. The psalmist lays down a foundation for us. When you're in the dark, only God's word will light up the correct path. Trusting in God one step at a time. What is even better for us, though, is that Jesus is a fulfillment of this verse. John begins his gospel account, John 1, held in Jesus as the word. The word that gives life to everything. And that life brought light to everything. The light that shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. That's John 1. John wrote his gospel. We remember, we've said it a thousand times this year. Not that you would just believe that Jesus is the Messiah, but that you will have life by the power of his name. Jesus is the word of God. The word is the lamp for my feet, a light upon my path. The light that is the light of the world. The light that is the word of God that gives light to everything. Life that is the light so that everyone can see and find their way through the darkness. No matter how dark it is, the darkness can never extinguish the light of Jesus. He is the light of the world. Jesus came into the world to shine a light for everybody. And anyone who would look upon the cross, that he was lifted up and believed in him, who would take his invitation and accept it, so you could curse, cast off that which lurks in the dark, put to death that which threatens to overtake you, Stand firm in the victory because you have been transformed. Moving from the temporal to the eternal. Because the time has come. The time has come. Jesus is shining his light on your path. Will you follow him? Or will you be overcome by the darkness? Will you serve a victorious king? Or will you keep 
the seed in your pocket, which just keeps going through the wash and goes stale. The time has come to live a life where God is revealed and glorified because he's invited you to be part of his eternal kingdom, living forever as children of light. I'm going to ask the musicians to come as we finish. Jesus, remember, is speaking this to people who were seeking truth. The Greek travelers who came, this was his response to them and to all those who were listening. So there's obviously questions there. They would have gone away with lots of questions. There's questions for us as well. The questions for you, the questions for me are this. Will you put to death that which prevents transformation in your life? Letting the seed die so that life can begin. Will you come to Jesus in prayer first time, every time, because he is our empathizer, our advocate? Will you walk as one who has victory, believing Jesus has overcome all things? Will you choose to walk in the light every day, taking God's work as your lamp, that you may not be overcome by darkness? Because the time has come to live your life as one that begins glory to his name. I'd like you to stand this morning, if you would. We're going to finish. We're going to pray together. As I said, I don't know your circumstance. I don't know what you've been through the last week. If it's been a good week, a bad week, an indifferent week. If you've had a bad life, a good life, an indifferent life. Where you are, the roller coaster, I don't know. But the truth is, Jesus knows. He knew before you even got there. That's why at the end he said, I want you to walk in the light. I want you to walk in the light. Because if we don't walk in the light, one step at a time, trusting God, we'll be overcome by darkness. That's the simple truth. Because he has called us to live a life that glorifies his name. Let's pray this morning. Dear Heavenly Father, we come to you. We come to you as children of light. Because you invited us in. Jesus invited anyone and everyone who would come and serve him and follow him. And your word says that you will honor everybody here who takes up the invitation. You will honor us. Lord, I pray this morning that every single person in this room would understand that Jesus understands. They would understand that Jesus understands. That he is our paraclete. He is our advocate, our comforter. And that even when he left, he sent another one, the Holy Spirit, to come. And Holy Spirit, you live within us. You are God within us. Let us never withhold from you, God. Let us never think we can do it in our own strength, but instead, like Jesus did, come to you. Jesus, at his most vulnerable, at his most grief-stricken, as he wrestled the hardest, where did he go? He went to you, God. He went to you. Let everybody person in this room, everybody here, let them come to you first and foremost. Lord, I pray that they would know that what they pray is so important. That's easy. It's easy to pray, rescue me, God. Save me, God. It's easy to pray that. But maybe, just maybe, you're calling us. You're calling us not to pray, rescue me, but God, refine me. God, I want you to be glorified in this situation. Not just rescue me. Are you doing something? Are you refining me? Are you making me grow? Everybody here, will you have the courage next time to pray, God be glorified. I surrender to your will. God be glorified. 
be revealed so that others may see who you are. Maybe, maybe sometimes you don't feel like you're victorious. But the Word tells us, the Word tells us that we have victory if we believe in Jesus. Jesus was victorious on the cross as He was lifted up. Even though it looked like defeat, it was victory. And because we believe in Jesus, we have victory. You are victorious in the name of Jesus. So let's walk and talk and live and speak as people who have victory not as people who have been defeated. We need to change the way we see our circumstance, the way we see that around us, that we would be people who live in victory, not defeat. And God, let us walk in the light. Let us follow the light of the world. Jesus, who is the word, a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. Let us follow Jesus because he shows us the path to take so that we are not overcome. Instead, let every single person in this room identify what it is that is holding them back. What is stopping you from transforming? What is stopping God from taking you to the next place you need to be? Cast off that which is holding you back. The worries and anxieties, the words spoken over to you, the people who have come into your life and have not encouraged you, the things that have happened that are not what you thought would happen. Cast them off. Let them die so that you can begin life anew, be transformed. And that life that you live will sustain others because God will use you as he's revealed in your circumstance. Lord, we thank you that you're here with us. We thank you you've given us everything. We thank you for the confirmation. You spoke from heaven so that people would know that your son is who he says he is. He is Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of Man, the King of Kings. And today we surrender to you and we thank you for all that you've done. Let us walk from this place and live this week different to last week. Let us go out of this place victorious, walking in the light, praying for God to be revealed because you are our advocate and you understand our pain. You understand our circumstance because you travel with us and you never leave us. Thank you, Jesus. Thanks for listening today. I hope you subscribe to the podcast so you can be inspired weekly. God bless and have a great day.